Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. From Crooked Media, this is Unholier Than Now. I'm your host, Philip Picardi. Well, everybody, ready or not, election day is less than one week away. Unfortunately, we can't guarantee we'll know who our next president is come the evening of November 3rd. What we can say is that, especially recently, this election has been one marked by religion. And I say religion and not faith because I mean the institution and not the practice. This became evident most recently this week, when Republicans rushed to confirm Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court. They prioritized her appointment, one condemned by activists all across the spectrum, overworking to approve another stimulus plan for the nation's struggling working class. What we've explored in many past episodes on this podcast is just how much the religious right has been fighting to engineer this moment for decades. And in a little bit, we'll hear more about the insight of conservative Christianity from the author Robert P. Jones. Jones, a former Southern Baptist, has disavowed his religious upbringing. Now he's working to show American Christians across the spectrum of ideology about their own complicity in white supremacy. But first, I wanted to take a moment to follow up on a story that received widespread applause and attention last week. Pope Francis has stirred up a long-standing issue inside the Roman Catholic Church, how to treat same-sex couples. In the forthcoming documentary about his life, Francesco, the Pope says on camera, Homosexual people have a right to be in the family. They are children of God. They have a right to a family. Nobody should be thrown out of the family or made miserable over this. What we have to make is a law of civil coexistence, for they have the right to be legally covered. I stood up for that. The press rushed to report this story as the Pope declaring his support for same-sex civil unions. Gay rights advocates responded with a mix of surprise and trepidation. My father texted me, self-righteously, to say the Pope supports gay marriage. In the words of Miss Oprah Winfrey while interviewing Lindsay Lohan, so what is the truth? To help me explore the Pope's history and his remarks, I'm thrilled to welcome Gerald Posner, the award-winning author of 13 books, including God's Banker, a history of money and power at the Vatican. Gerald, thanks for being here. It's always good to talk about uh, one of my favorite subjects, the, the Vatican. <laughs> <laughs> the Vatican. Yes. Me, luckily, me too. Um, in fact, my middle name is Francis. I think my father was once upon a time hoping I would become a priest. <laughs> Obviously, that didn't happen. Um, the whole abstinence thing wasn't really for me. You know what I mean? I think the whole abstinence thing isn't even sometimes really for priests. Uh, yes, as we've seen in great detail. Um, well, first of all, I'm wondering if you can give me your reaction to Pope Francis's remarks about, quote, civil coexistence for gay people. There are a lot of times that you can say on a 2,000-year-old institution like the Vatican about time. Francis had been a hardliner when he was the archbishop and cardinal in Buenos Aires. He'd been against uh, same-sex marriage and he'd been against uh, adoption. He question was, was he changing his mind slowly? And so the fantastic part about this is, although it doesn't change church doctrine, they're so clever. So a lot of people may not know, they just may think it happened in a documentary the other day that he was quoted. It actually is a 2019 
documentary that he gave to Mexican journalists in this large interview in which the Vatican also set up its own cameras and then they run a copy of the interview. And afterwards, the Vatican edited out the part where he gave this answer, which is so interesting. So he was actually opening this up a year ago. He ran That ran on Mexican television. Nothing was made about that. It actually jumps at that point. Then they let a documentarian get access to the film archives inside the Vatican who put this all together. And everyone around Francis now says, oh, we're so shocked. We didn't realize he was using that little clip of film. Of course they knew it. It's their way of floating it out there, showing that he's changed his view of it. He's loosening up the process. All of the conservatives will go crazy for a while, but it moves it further along toward full acceptance at some stage. One thing I want to clarify, because the the way that this was reported in the mainstream press, it made it sound like the Pope is approving of gay marriage or even a same-sex civil union. But when I read the quote of what he actually said, that is not exactly my takeaway. Was that your takeaway? Francis is a master at being able to say things in a very wonderful political sort of generic sense that then people put into it what they want and they interpret it in the widest possible interpretation. So if you remember early on when he was first elected and he was asked even then about uh, the entire issue of, you know, is the church going to loosen its rules on homosexuality being a sin? And he said, who am I to judge? Well, the feeling was, by God, he was opening up the door. But then his actions didn't follow that. Right. Who am I to judge is not exactly a political statement. You know what I mean? It's like... And we know who he is to judge because I was raised a Catholic. I mean, I had sisters of charity and then Jesuits. I get it. He's the Pope. So he actually can judge even if we disagree with him. But in that sense of saying, who am I to judge? He gave the feeling as though he was going to change doctrine and he doesn't. So in many ways, and you know, I ran into this because I, I looked at the money in the Vatican and, and Francis promises a lot. He seems to be the reformer. He's definitely more liberal than his predecessor, but that's like saying, you know, uh, comparing him to Benedict, it's like night and days, anybody would be more liberal, but he doesn't always follow through with the actual doctrines that make changes in the church. I do feel like the way Pope Francis is perceived by the general public is that he is this more progressive and more liberal pope. And you could have the impression that maybe he's sort of like, and please forgive this analogy, both Gerald and the people listening, maybe he's kind of like President Barack Obama, who had a Republican-controlled Senate and House. And so he wants to do all this stuff, but maybe he can't because his hands are tied. Is that what's happening here? Okay, so in the beginning, in 2013, when he becomes Pope, I would have said that's absolutely the case. He's inherited this sort of orthodox hierarchy of all these conservatives. So Francis has to really be careful. All the knives are out for him. Then by the time, you know, he's in there for three or four years, now I'm starting to have second thoughts in terms of why he's not pressing harder. And here's why. He has now appointed 60% of the cardinals who will elect the next pope. He just appointed 13 new cardinals, including the first, uh, you know, African-American cardinal ever out of Washington, D.C. He's a progressive 60% of those electors are his choices. So they, you would think they would share his view. He owns the church now. He's got it. He has the hierarchy. Mm. So if he, if he wanted, now he's Barack Obama with a Democratic House and a Democratic Senate. And the question is, why isn't he pushing those issues through as he's older that are important to him 
at a time when he has a lock on the church. And, and that I don't know the answer to, unfortunately. This actually extends to a lot of different issues that may appeal to younger or more progressive Catholics. Can you tell me a little bit more about what some of those other stances might be? Uh, what about the idea that, you know, it, it took Francis to say, if you get a divorce in the Catholic Church, you can go back and maybe take a, a, the sacrament. You can at some point have communion again. I mean, they haven't even sanctified divorce, even though Catholics get divorced at record rates. And that's the end of it. What about women possibly for the priesthood, instead of being second-class citizens, the sexist hierarchy where only men can perform the idea of the sacraments and women can just go along and pray all the time as nuns. What about the idea of allowing priests to marry? So what about the idea of finally addressing the pedophilia scandal so that when priests are defrocked because they've committed so many crimes that are considered so heinous, they're kicked out of the priesthood, 400 of them done in just the last decade, that they then inform the local civil authorities, and even inside the finances, which may not be of interest to, you know, especially to younger followers of the church, but the, the church has been so steeped in corruption and mystery and doing things with the mafia in the past. I thought he would be the person who would clean it all up, and he has cleaned up a lot of it, but there are still things I scratch my head at. Do you think that it is a superficial uh, commitment to change, or do you think that there's some reality to it? I think he's sincere. He does get a lot of pushback from the old timers. So there's no doubt about that. It's not an easy process. But I think that for him, it's almost like sometimes putting up a trial balloon, putting it out there to see what the reaction is. And remember, there's something really unusual going on with Francis that we've never had at any other time in, in Catholic history. And this is like a 2000 year point that the idea of a living Pope, an ex-Pope, retired Pope still alive. So the, the problem would be is if Francis went far enough down the line of opening up the Catholic church to the new world and you had the old Pope finally coming out publicly and saying, by the way, I disagree with this. I'm telling you that I was the vicar of Christ on earth. And although I'm not now, this is wrong. That could make a schism inside the church. That's the last thing Francis wants. So having a living Pope who's quiet right now is something you don't want to stir him up enough that all of a sudden he's appealing to try to get a faction to break away inside the church. That kind of schism might be exactly what the Catholic Church needs. You know, all of these other sects of Christianity have broken off and they have a progressive wing and a more regressive wing or whatever you want to, whatever you want to call it, however you want to call it. But Catholicism has largely maintained a very monolithic belief in the Vatican. The Vatican has this unusual idea, and it's all built around that little plot of land that's the size of a postage stamp, the idea that it is both a government, which it is, and at the same time, it's a religion which thinks it's the true inheritor to Christ. So it, although it is a monolithic religion, it's an odd one because People go to church on Sunday or call themselves Catholics if asked in an interview or in a poll, but they don't follow much of what the religion says. Most Catholic women, everybody I know, is using a pill or an IUD or something else, and as a result, they're flaunting religious feelings. They still consider themselves to be Catholic. Catholic women will sometimes have an abortion, big sin in the Catholic faith, still consider themselves Catholic. Um, gay members of the Catholic Church will still consider themselves good Catholics and go to Mass, even though the Church technically says that's still a sin. So the idea of this monolithic faith is odd because we allow everybody under the umbrella, even the 80% who don't follow the rules, who say the Pope's a good guy, but I'm not going to follow that rule because it doesn't fit me. Do you think the Pope is this progressive bastion that the mainstream press loves to paint him as? 
I would like to think so. The uh, on my best days, and then on the days when I'm running into some uh, sort of heads, you know, brick wall, trying to get something from the Vatican about some reform that they promised a year and a half ago on reforming the Vatican Bank, and it's still not done, or disclosing some documents from. 50 years ago that they still haven't released, then I think no. Coming back to this is for people who don't remember in 2012 or earlier, the previous Pope, I mean, he was a real, you know, uh, uh, sour and dour, uh, only by the rules, conservative uh, head of the church with no charisma, no personality that anybody liked. And Francis was everything different. And so we'd like to think different also means full reformer but he is not going to turn the church upside down. In the States, we've just confirmed Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court. Um, Like many proud Catholics, she is a pretty notorious bigot. Do you think that simply what the Pope said is going to help to work to change the hearts and minds of anti-gay Catholics? He was asked, as a matter of fact, you know, why uh, he had come to this because he'd been so firmly against it when he was uh, the Cardinal of uh, Buenos Aires. And he said, you change, you know, you, you do evolve. And I think that the Pope has broken the first big line. It's coming not just from a cardinal, not from a commentator, it's coming from the Pope himself, so that there will be a lot of Catholics who will start to think about it in a different way. That is the beginning of a slow, gradual process to those traditionalists. This tension of the Pope is akin to God and we have to be reverent of the Pope, but then also of conservative Catholics saying, well, he doesn't speak for me, has been an interesting phenomenon to watch, has it not? We have this odd thing, as you know, Philip, of infallibility for the Pope. The Pope can be infallible, but it's only if he invokes it, and they never invoke that. So we don't see an infallible Pope. We see a fallible one time and time again. There's always a risk, just like in a presidency here in the U.S., that we could go backwards with the next election and have a Pope that's to traditionalist and brings us back into the 1950s instead of into the 2020s. But I think that the die is cast, that we are moving toward a more progressive future, the Catholic Church. My last question is that um, I actually had to delay my wedding this year due to the coronavirus pandemic. So I'm just wondering, um, in your opinion, should I hold my breath to walk down the aisle at a Catholic church with my husband next year? I would have two ceremonies. I would do this one, if you have it, in the beginning part of 2021, have a great celebration and make it a real day to celebrate. And then when the church finally changes that policy and you're able to walk down the aisle of whether it's St. Patrick's or the local church in your own city, do it again. It'll be um, worth it. But I would not wait for the church to change it. Uh, You might be waiting a little bit longer than 2021. Yep, I think I'll be gray in the hair and long in the tooth. (laughs) Gerald, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Philip, thanks so much. After the break, my interview with an ex-Southern Baptist. Unholier Than Thou is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Businesses have had to be flexible this year, from working remotely to pivoting their business models for long-term survival and growth. You've seen this recently. Restaurants are moving their dining outdoors and adding takeout and catering, and major retailers are now selling face masks. And if you're in charge of hiring for your business, these pivots have made your job even more challenging, especially if you have to hire for brand new roles. Thankfully, there's one place that you can always count on to make hiring faster and easier. ZipRecruiter.com unholy. When you post a job on ZipRecruiter, it gets sent out to over 100 top job boards with one click. Then, ZipRecruiter's powerful technology finds people with the right skills and experience for your job and actively invites them to apply. 
It's no wonder that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. See for yourself. Right now, you can try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com unholy. That's ZipRecruiter.com U-N-H-O-L-Y. Let ZipRecruiter take hiring off your plate so you can focus on growing your business. Go to ZipRecruiter.com unholy. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Unholier Than Now is brought to you by Parachute. I don't know if you saw the recent photos of my home that I posted on my Instagram, but you sure would have seen the gorgeous linen sheets on my bed from Parachute. I am obsessed with them. They are so cozy and they are so warm. And we believe that when we take care of our home, it takes care of us. So what does home mean to you? How have your parachute items contributed to that feeling? Parachute's mission is to make you feel at home. Home is the most comforting word there is. It's where we go to recharge, wash off the day, and rest up for tomorrow. Parachute's everyday essentials are designed in Los Angeles and responsibly manufactured by the world's best craftspeople. They only use the finest materials to make long-lasting, quality home essentials. Parachute linen is light, airy, and casually elegant, giving it timeless appeal. Made in a family-owned factory in Portugal, your linen sheets are made without any harmful chemicals or synthetic softeners. So nothing comes between you and Parachute's naturally comfortable fabrics. Visit ParachuteHome.com unholy for free shipping and returns on Parachute's premium quality, very comfortable home essentials. That's ParachuteHome.com unholy. Unholier Than Now is brought to you by Blinkist. Let me tell you about one of the ultimate life hacks. Blinkist is unique and it works on your phone, your tablet, or your web browser. Blinkist takes the best key takeaways, the need-to-know information from thousands of nonfiction books and condenses them down into just 15 minutes that you can read or listen to. Blinkist has the latest titles from bestsellers lists as well as the classic nonfiction titles you were always meant to read but never had time to. I've read Becoming by Michelle Obama, or you could try How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi. With Blinkist, you get unlimited access to read or listen to a massive library of condensed nonfiction books, all the books you want and all for one low price. Right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com unholy and try it free for seven days and save 25% off your new subscription. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com unholy to start your free seven-day trial. And you'll also save 25% off, but only when you sign up at Blinkist.com unholy. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. All right, y'all, now that we've finished our detour in the Vatican, it's time to get back stateside. Religion is a major motivating factor for many American voters, whether they're casting their ballot for Democrats or Republicans. But so much of the press about religious voters is centered on white conservative Christians and their apparently unlikely allegiance to Donald Trump. But according to the ex-Southern Baptist Robert P. Jones, white conservative Christians and Donald Trump actually have one key thing in common. It's called racism. Robert, thanks for joining us. Yeah, of course. I'm glad to be here. Now, I'm told that you grew up Southern Baptist in the South. Can you tell me a little bit about what that experience was like for you, especially growing up? Yeah, no, that's right. I I grew up uh, Southern Baptist, uh, mostly in Jackson, Mississippi. 
Um, you know, and it was kind of an all-encompassing world. I mean, I, I was that kid and, and, and my family, we were at church as many as five times a week. I went to a Southern Baptist college uh, just outside of my hometown, um, Mississippi College, and then uh, I went to a Southern Baptist seminary um, as well. And our family actually goes back six generations, um, you know, there in, uh, in that red clay of, of, of middle Georgia. So, and they're all really uh, Baptist all the, way, all the way back, as far as I can tell. Um, a, a few Baptist preachers along the way, um, uh, but, uh, but certainly occupying Baptist churches all the way back. So if you grew up and were kind of engulfed in this environment and you said you even went to seminary um, in this environment, how did you kind of break away enough to realize that Christianity played a major role in forming some of the racial hierarchies that are causing so much discord in American society today? You know, looking back on it, it is it is right. I mean, that, that language of breaking out is, I think, accurate because uh, when you're in that world, it, it really is hard to see. Um, out of it. I grew up, I was in elementary school in the 1970s. And I remember the first black kid showing up at my school um, and got absolutely no conversation or explanation uh, from my church about it, uh, what that was all about. Um, just all of a sudden, it, it was an all white school, it was a public school. And then uh, the next year, um, it was integrated. Um, but that even the word integration wasn't even used. I mean, it just wasn't, it literally was not spoken of, um, really. They got no explanation about it, no talk about civil rights. And, and so basically it was Mississippi dragging its feet for nearly 20 years after Brown v. Board of Education, um, you know, before they actually got around to integrating um, the public schools. My parents did us, my, my siblings and I, some favors by at least insulating us, I think, from the worst sorts of overt racism that uh, in that previous generation um, had been there. And, and I think that created some distance. And then it was really getting uh, some teachers. I mean, I remember sitting in a seminary class and a Baptist history class uh, and having a professor who finally told me the full story of the beginnings of my home denomination. And that is in 1845, uh, the Baptists in the South put forward um, a candidate for uh, to be a missionary um, who, was a, uh, who was a slave owner. And uh, the Baptists in the North rejected it. And when they did, Baptists in the South formed the Southern Baptist Convention. That's why that word Southern is in there to indicate this alignment with what became kind of the Confederate, you know, worldview, but certainly to make, I mean, so the, the Genesis story of my own denomination that I didn't learn until my early twenties was, you know, to put it very starkly, um, that it was a religious denomination, a Christian denomination whose purpose, uh, was to make the enslavement of other human beings on the basis of their skin color, um, compatible with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So to recap, when I see a Baptist church in New York, they may not hold the same principles as, for example, a Baptist church in Mississippi. That the Southern is not just a denotation of geography. This is also noting a belief system or a founding principle. Yeah, and it became the denominational name. But it is worth noting that this is not just a Baptist story. I and mean, this every uh, denomination, every Protestant denomination um, of any size split um, over the issue of slavery. The Methodist split, the Presbyterian split, the Lutheran split, the Episcopalian split. Um, and the Episcopalians, I think, which many people associate with New York and, and kind of the Northeast, um, we're actually the home denomination of um, both Jefferson Davis, the president of the Confederacy, and, and Robert E. Lee. 
So, Robert, are you telling me that racism exists across all <laughs> sects of Christianity? Uh, yeah, you're, I hear a little uh, faux shock in your voice. <laughs> Perhaps. <laughs> well, um, I was raised Catholic, honey, so this is no <laughs> surprise to me. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's that's right. I think people love to point fingers and, and sort of say, okay, this is a white evangelical problem. It's a Southern problem. But I think one of the big reveals of the book and, and look using not only a lot of historical research, but a lot of social science research of public opinion attitudes today, not 100 years ago, but today, um, you know, does reveal that this, this, this commitment really to white supremacy um, is still there. Um, so, you know, even when I looked at a, a whole range of questions in the book in current public opinion data, around kind of holding more racist views, especially um, denying the existence of systemic racism from Confederate monuments, uh, uh, Confederate flags, uh, to the killing of African-American men by police. Uh, You basically see white Christians of all kinds um, really scoring very high on what I ended up calling in the book a racism index. And I I scored that index from from 1 to 10, with a 10 being holding the most racist attitudes, 1 being holding the least. And what was remarkable, really, is that um, white evangelicals scored 8 out of 10 on that index, but white mainline Protestants scored 7 out of 10, and white Catholics um, you know, uh, scored also 7 um, out of 10. Um, we still see them scoring very high, particularly around anti-black attitudes um, in the surveys. So basically, you created a racism index for the book. It's a set of 15 survey questions that were designed to assess attitudes towards white supremacy and black people. And so essentially what you did with your book is you gave this survey to white Christians across all sorts of denominations. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. The The, the index, the description is right. And, uh, and it was, this came in a nationally public, you know, probability sample survey, nationally representative survey of over 2,500 Americans uh, that was conducted in 2018 and a follow-up survey in 2019 um, as well. Uh, So it's a very large and robust sample uh, that included white Christians. When I compare the scores of white Christians uh, across these questions to the scores of whites who are not Christian, right, those who claim no religious affiliation, the differences are really stark. Um, So whereas you have white Christians scoring between 7 and 8 on this uh, racism index, uh, whites who are unaffiliated only score 4. Um, out of 10. They're much closer mm. to the views of African-Americans who score two um, you know, on this index. Isn't that interesting? If you ask the question, you know, whose views are closer to the concerns um, and experiences of African-Americans uh, among whites, it's certainly not white Christians. It's whites who uh, have no religious affiliation. Now, Robert, do you still identify as Christian? I do. Yeah, I, I, I don't really identify with a denomination. Uh, so I would say sure. I, I'm kind of generally you know, identify as a Protestant Christian. So what I feel like you're talking about in this book is a failure of American Christianity, right? Because Christianity cannot also be racist, cannot also be um, intrinsically tied with the oppression of marginalized people. That's certainly not one of the founding principles of Christianity. And of course, you could ask any Catholic, any Protestant, any evangelical Christian, right? Whether they believe racism is wrong, all of them will say well, I would think they would say racism is wrong. And yet, you know, your book points out that they're not exactly practicing what they are preached. So what happened? Well, you know, I, look, I, this is a really personal book um, for me. So, you know, I weave my own, you know, family story and my own journey journey on these issues. Um, uh, this really is still in progress. Um, as a white Christian, I can say, yes, this is a massive failure 
um, that involves enormous self-deception on the part of white Christians. Uh, everything from, you know, uh, white Christian beliefs uh, justifying uh, the treatment of indigenous uh, people uh, here in, in the U.S. Like my own family uh, gets to Georgia, for example, by being given land from the federal government uh, in 1815 from a, what they called a land lottery. Now, how did that land become available to be given away? Uh, it was only after Cherokee Indians um, had been removed uh, in what's called the Indian Removal Act. And that's how my family gets land in Georgia, right? And that was really buttressed by um, a belief really in the superior of white Christian civilization, um, that, that mm-hmm. this was as God had designed it, really was for white, white Christian people to be at the top of the uh, pyramid and others to be below there. So there was a, um, it was justified by Christian principles, as was slavery. Right. Yes. I mean, yeah, going back to slavery is, is important here because a lot of folks don't necessarily realize that the colonization of the land that, you know, we are sitting on was largely blessed and affirmed by the church. These early so-called explorers believed that they were carrying out their God-given mission um, by forcibly converting people to Christianity, whether that was enslaved people or, as you pointed out, indigenous people. So how is it possible to find a way to be an ethical Christian in America? Well, I think the only way possible is to tell a truer story about who we are and how we got here. Um, But I I think there is no possible way, um, really, to be an ethical, faithful, authentic Christian uh, without acknowledging this history. Um, You know, we sort of acknowledge it here and there, um, but we don't acknowledge, you know, is that um, how, how recently this was you know, just in my parents' generation, this was not implicit or, uh, you know, it was overt. And to that, you know, rhetorical question you gave earlier, um, if you had asked people in 1960, if you'd gone to, to my parents' white Baptist church in Macon, Georgia, and asked people in 1960, do they think that, you know, white Christians were meant uh, to be or, or, or were the superior uh, race and religion in the country, um, they would have just without blinking said yes. And Christianity really played the role of legitimizing um, that that worldview. I mean, there's no stronger way to legitimize um, a cultural worldview than to connect it to uh, the very will of God, right? And that was really the role that Christianity played, was connecting this idea that whites were destined to, yes, civilize, quote-unquote, civilize the world, you know, and to put other people under... um, uh, really under under their foot, um, you know, literally or under their knee um, to take it, you know, straight to things that we've seen just over the summer, um, and and this was um, this was seen to be, you know, the will of God. If you're a white Christian who is invested in racial justice, and you do want to be able to have a real reckoning with the church's past and your religion's past in racial oppression throughout history, where do you start? I would say that um, the materials are closer at hand than I think many white Christians think they are. Um, and that is, I think, with our own family stories. I should say, preface this by saying, this is a question that only someone who grew up white can actually even ask themselves, because it's a nonsensical question if you're a person of color uh, in this country. And that is to ask, like, where did race show up for me, like as a child or um, as an adolescent growing up, where does it enter into my consciousness, right? Only a white person can really ask themselves that question uh, and, and have the privilege that it was mostly invisible uh, to them. But when I started asking that question, I mean, that's where I think just this little thread appeared 
Um, and as I began to journal and began to kind of pull that thread, you know, I found it was connected to more things than I thought. Um, and then I began to have conversations with my family, with my friends growing up and kind of checking out those memories. Is that right? Did that really happen that way? What was that about? Like when that black kid came to visit our church, for example, and it caused an emergency deacons meeting to figure out what we were going to do. It created a crisis just by an African-American kid coming to church one Sunday, you know. So how was that? What was going on there? And then I think the other thing, there's a ton of really great resources. I mean, I am hoping that this book is one of those resources um, to kind of help people um, think about and have a structure to kind of, as, as I've tried to lay out my own journey, that maybe that helps as well. And then I, but I do think um, having these conversations in their own churches, why is our church where it is, like geographically located where it is? Because um, if it's a church of any age, you know, it'll be probably located in an area that was once designated as a quote-unquote white area of the city. Um, if it's out in the suburbs, most likely it's because that church was a white flight church. At the end of the day, I think what really matters here is for white Christians to decide finally um, that um, we're just going to do two things. We're going to tell the truth and we're going to love our neighbors um, and, and that our neighbors aren't just the people in our church, right? There's going to be so many conversations about Christians and the role that Christians play in American politics in the coming weeks. And I think one of the the big concerns among folks has been that Trump has this grip on white evangelical Christians. And we keep pointing the finger at white evangelical Christians because they not only bankroll Donald Trump, they also vote for him in droves. The churches are effectively used as, you know, political locations um, to elect Trump and other people who are who are far right and far right oriented. Do you think that we have somehow overstated the role that white evangelical Christians play? Or do you think that we need to start talking about all white Christians the same way that we are dissecting the white evangelical Christians? Um, white evangelicals do stand out among even white Christians, right? So, yes. uh, but maybe not as much as everybody thinks. I think that's the corrective. Um, that I think you you really hear people mostly talking about white evangelicals and not talking about other white Christians. But it's worth noting that in 2016, uh, perhaps everybody knows uh, this number that eight in 10, it was 81% of white evangelicals, according to the exit polls, voted for Donald Trump. But it's worth noting that uh, a, a little more than six in 10 white Catholics and a little bit less than six in 10 white mainline Protestants also voted for Trump. Trump didn't create this pattern. It's actually been there really since Reagan. You can describe the religious landscape since Reagan as white Christians uh, voting for Republican candidates, really who the, whoever they are, and really everyone else in the religious landscape, so Christians of color, uh, Latino Catholics, Latino Protestants, African-American Protestants, and the religiously unaffiliated, all uh, majorities uh, voting for Democratic uh, candidates. What set that pattern, this is really worth noting, was not abortion. It was not same-sex marriage. What set that pattern was white Christian resistance to the civil rights movement. Because prior to 1965, all those white Christians were Democrats, right? And the thing that made them switch parties um, really was the Democratic Party becoming the party supporting civil rights for African Americans. And once that became clear, there really was this literal white Christian flight of folks from the Democratic Party to the Republican Party. The one thing I would say, we just released a survey at PRI this week, um, our American Values Survey, that's showing a little bit of daylight, and that's the one caveat I want to offer here, between white evangelicals and other white Christians. 
uh, in their support for Trump. It looks like while white evangelicals are right there, we still have eight and ten saying they're going to they're going to vote for the president. But among white mainline Protestants and white Catholics, um, it does look like there is some pulling away uh, from President Trump. And in fact, what we're showing among uh, white Catholics is it looks like um, that, that Biden is actually ahead uh, right now. White mainline Protestants are kind of divided, but but among white Catholics overall today, we're seeing we're seeing Biden up. Biden is Catholic himself. I think that's that's worth pointing out. Yep. And so there may be that contributing to it. Obviously, Trump's mishandling of the coronavirus and everything else withstanding. I, I, what, I guess what I'm saying is I'm glad they finally got the point. Yeah. Well, the one, um, just one, one quick caveat yeah, on ahead. this. To, that I think one of the things pulling them, it is the coronavirus, but it, it is also his handling of the protest for racial justice this summer. Like we're, we're seeing direct evidence of movement now among white mainline and white Catholics. Their views, for, for example, on the killing of African-American men by police five years ago, when we asked a question about that, uh, their views look no different than white evangelicals uh, did. Uh, so about seven and 10, for example, said, uh, that the killing of African-American men by police were, were just isolated incidents, right? That they weren't part of a pattern of discrimination. Um, and, and today, white evangelicals still 7 and 10 say that, but the, the views now of, of white Catholics and white mainline are have dropped more than 10 points. They're, they're now under 60%. And those numbers have remained steady, even as we've had a few months of distance from the initial wake of protests after the death of George Floyd? The big shifts have really come um, from 2015 and 2018. Um, but, but over this year, they've been fairly stable. I wonder in closing, as we talk about the future of Christianity, regardless of whether we're talking about mainline Protestantism or Catholicism, many of these churches are led by white men. Do you think that there is a possibility for the church to ethically move forward if the composition of their leadership does not change? In other words, can white Christians ever fully realize the true purpose of Christianity in America if they are only being led by white men as their ultimate arbiters of faith? The leadership is overwhelmingly white. It's overwhelmingly male. The problem, and and I think the challenge for many white Christian churches, is that many of those younger people over the last couple of decades have left, right? So the energy that would be there for agitating and pushing for change um, they've kind of pushed for change by leaving rather than staying inside of those uh, structures and, and pushing them. What I expect will happen um, is that the, the real reforms will come outside of uh, the current structures. I don't think I know what that looks like. I am more hopeful today than I was uh, when I turned this book in for publication a year ago. You know, even in my home state of Mississippi, just to take one quick example, um, when I turned the book in a year ago, there's no way I would have imagined that my home state of Mississippi would have removed the Confederate battle flag from its state flag, which it did over the summer. And that before the legislature and the governor did that, the white Baptists in Mississippi would stand up and say, this is the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. You know, one of my old seminary classmates was the president of the Mississippi Baptist Convention who held a big press conference urging the governor um, you know, to do this. And, and 19 years ago, the state held a referendum on this exact question, and there were no white religious voices anywhere willing to speak up. So, you know, there's, with monuments being toppled, those kinds of things, I I think there is a moment of effervescence and a moment of opportunity here that white Christians can seize, and that I hope that we do, because at the end of the day, yes, we owe a great debt and need to figure out how we repair the damage that we've done uh, by upholding white supremacy for so long in this country. We have distorted our own faith 
in order to make mm -hmm. it compatible with white supremacy, right? And so there is this great healing, I think, that needs to take place even within our own congregation. For me, when I think about the future and reckoning with these pasts, I do look at the incredible work that has been done by Black activists who have been leading this work. And I know that um, if we want the church to follow suit, uh, the church has to look a lot different. Um, and I think that's an important thing for us to consider as all of us move forward, hopefully, in a post-Donald Trump America. Robert Jones, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it today. Oh, yeah. It's great to be with you. That's all for our show today. If you liked what you hear, please subscribe, leave a review, make a voting plan, and send your prayers up that Donald Trump loses bigly at the polls. And as always, if you need any more information on voting, volunteering, phone baking, etc., visit votesaveamerica.com. We'll see you next week, and hopefully we'll have something to celebrate. Until then. Unholier Than Now is a Crooked Media production. Brian Semmel is our associate producer and Sydney Rapp is our assistant producer with production support from Ruben Davis. The theme song is by Taka Yasuzawa and the show is executive produced by me, Lyra Smith, and Sarah Geismer. Thanks for listening. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made in Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made in. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made in Cookware.